This is an EM Pulse Heartbeat with your host, Julia Magana. I am seeing a lot more febrile kiddos now that they are coming out of their houses and around other infectious sources. And like you, I have heard a lot of news about MISC, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. But how common is it? Do I need to work up every febrile kiddo for this? Fortunately, to clarify these questions, we have Dr. Natasha Nakra, a pediatric infectious disease physician at UC Davis and recent author of the article, Review of Clinical Presentation, Hypothetical Pathogenesis and Proposed Management in Children. So we are here today because of COVID, (laughs) what everything is about right now, right? Uh, But we want to talk specifically about how COVID is impacting kids and MISC. First of all, let's just define that. What is MISC? What does it stand for? Yes, MISC. So the name has changed a few different times, but this is the official CDC name. So it stands for Multisystem Inflammatory Syndrome in Children. MIS-C. And so this is describing something that first emerged out of Europe and then New York City um, in late April, early May, uh, following the peak of COVID infection um, in those areas where they saw children presenting with this highly inflammatory state that appeared to be occurring about a month after the peak of COVID cases in adults in those regions. I'm suggesting that the syndrome was actually linked to COVID. And how common is this actually? I think that it, it remains to be seen exactly how common it is. But at this point in the United States, there have probably been a few hundred cases reported um, in the New England Journal article, which came out a couple of weeks ago. That described patients through the end of May. And at that time, there had been 186 patients described. So this is a reportable condition. So we hope that we are capturing all of these cases. And so my guess is that since the end of May, we've probably had another one to 200 cases here in the U.S. Yeah, actually, you are right on what I saw on the CDC website. They said as of July 15th, they'd received reports of 342 cases and six deaths. Um, So it's fairly rare But it's definitely making a lot of the news. (laughs) And, you know, it is that big question of how does COVID impact our children? So walk us through, when should we think about this fairly rare occurrence, this fairly rare problem? When should we suspect MISE? I think we're trying to figure that out also. But based on the reports that we have seen so far, the majority of these patients are presenting with a prolonged febrile illness. So in general, we don't think of COVID as causing symptomatic infection in children very commonly. And if they do have symptomatic infection, it tends to be mild. So these patients, on the other hand, are coming in having had a high fever generally for at least three to four days. And then they often are ill-appearing. So they have tachycardia, they can present in shock. um, And then a lot of them are also presenting with signs and symptoms of Kawasaki disease. So I think if you try to think about a few different ways that that it's presenting. One is the child who's been febrile for several days without a cause, often with or without signs of Kawasaki disease. And then there are some that are presenting more emergently um, with signs of impending shock or in shock already. 
Yeah, those are the ones that uh, keep me up at night wanting to read more about MISC is that concern for this new type of shock that we're seeing. And MISC, we believe that the mechanism for it is similar to Kawasaki's in that it's a vasculitis, right? It's inflammation of the vessels. Yes, it does seem to be this sort of generalized systemic vasculitis. The exact um, pathophysiology behind it, again, is something that's under study. And so it seems like it's most likely something related to an adaptive immune response, again, because it, it seems to be occurring a few weeks, often three to four weeks after a child has been exposed to somebody with COVID. But we're still trying to figure out those exact um, mechanisms. Yeah. I mean, we're still trying to figure out Kawasaki, right? Yeah, <laughs> After how true. many and years? It, it's, I think this actually may help us or give insight to Kawasaki as well. So it kind of goes both ways. Yeah, I've definitely heard that as well. So how do we make the diagnosis of MISC? What are the features that we need to look for? So fever is, is a part of the CDC definition. So a child has to have had a fever that's been either documented in the hospital or at home. Again, generally, they'll have at least three to four days of fever, but per the CDC definition, just a single day of fever is enough. And then the multi-system involvement is the other key part. So at least two systems have to be involved. The most common system, interestingly, has been the GI system. So it seems like a lot of these children have come in with vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, and then other common things include, you know, the skin has been involved, similar to Kawasaki disease with the mucocutaneous involvement. And then the cardiac manifestations are the, the next most common system after the GI system. So a lot of these patients have tachycardia or other evidence of cardiovascular involvement. Like hypotension. Like hypotension, like left ventricular dysfunction, and then rarely myocarditis, valvulitis, or coronary artery abnormalities. And there's some lab criteria as well, right? Like they want to see this inflammatory response. What lab work should we order? So there has to be at least um, one lab that demonstrates evidence of inflammation, although the majority of these patients um, have several labs that indicate inflammation. And so, you know, we check our general markers of inflammation, which include a C-reactive protein and a sedimentation rate. Um, compared to children with Kawasaki disease, it seems like the C-reactive protein is even higher than what we see in those patients. They also can have an elevated procalcitonin, so similar to patients with sepsis. And then some interesting features which are distinct from Kawasaki disease include having an elevated ferritin, so kind of along the lines of a hemophagocytic syndrome. And then we also see neutrophilia as well as uh, lymphopenia. So let's talk about when we should suspect um, MISC. What kids should I do a workup on? I've worked quite a few shifts in the last couple of weeks, and I've had a lot of kids now coming in with fevers. I don't know if they're out more than they were before, but I've definitely had a bump in kids that are coming in with a fever. All right, let's say I had a child that comes in with one day of fever. It's legit. You know, it's like 102.5. No other symptoms. Do I do a workup on that child? Do I draw labs? In a child who has a single day of fever, I think other viral infections are so common that if they don't have any other signs or symptoms, I would not recommend doing labs that early. I think it becomes more concerning as fever persists. So definitely in a child who has fever for five days or more, similar to Kawasaki disease, even if they have no other signs or symptoms, I would get labs in that patient. I think in the in-between range, so someone who has fever for three to four days, it's a little more tricky 
But I think, again, I would be looking for some other additional signs or symptoms to suggest that there may be MISC if they're otherwise vital signs are not too concerning and clinically there's no signs of MISC, I don't think labs would be indicated. However, if there is a rash or conjunctivitis or GI symptoms where you're starting to see maybe some evidence of multi-system involvement, I think labs in that setting would be appropriate. And so we may be checking labs more often than we did prior to knowing about MISC. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I don't normally order labs on every kid that's been, you know, two or three days of fever with a couple episodes of vomiting, if they can tolerate PO with some Zofran a la casa, if they're up to date on their shots. But you're saying if they have those symptoms right now, while we're trying to understand MISC, it's better to be conservative and obtain those labs early. Yeah, I think so. I think especially if they are in an area where where they're seeing a lot of COVID and if they have an exposure or some sort of epidemiologic link and now they've had fever for a few days without really any clear explanation, I think it would be appropriate in those settings to do an initial screening lab, see if there's any evidence of inflammation, and then use those labs to go ahead and decide whether or not to do more evaluation for MISC. All right. So we get some screening labs. We are suspicious for MISC. Somebody has an elevated ferritin unexpectedly. Uh, Does everybody need to be admitted even if they're stable or what's our kind of admission criteria here? So at this point, if they have significant evidence of inflammation, so we're generally using the same cutoffs that we do for Kawasaki disease. So a CRP of three or a sedimentation rate of 40, in that case, we are recommending admission for observation um, with trending of labs. If you happen to find also an elevated ferritin, I think that would heighten your concern that there is something more going on. And so at this point, admission for observation would probably be the most appropriate thing to do. But as we get more information, I think we will start to be able to differentiate which patients can be monitored with daily labs, maybe in the outpatient setting versus actually needing to be admitted. I think what's concerning is that there have been patients who have come in with milder presentations and then worsened within the first 24 to 48 hours of admission. And so that's why being more conservative at this point probably makes sense. What cutoff values are those? So right now, so the C-reactive protein of three or the sedimentation rate of 40 is generally what we're using just to sort of put them into significant inflammation or not. For ferritin, I would say a cutoff of about 500 would be considered significant. Yeah, that's good to know because I don't order a ferritin very regularly, if ever, in kids. And so, I I mean, I know CRP and I know ESR, what's normal and what's not, but ferritin's not on my list. I think that's true for us, too. And I think we're realizing that ferritin is also a nonspecific inflammatory marker. And so just relying on a single lab marker alone probably is not enough. I think there is, really is a similar to Kawasaki where it's sort of putting together the labs and the clinical picture to make the diagnosis. One thing that I think we forgot to talk about in making this diagnosis is the role of identifying COVID and past infection. How does that part work? At this point, there are obviously two types of tests that can look for COVID that are commonly available. The first is a PCR, typically done from a nasopharyngeal sample, and the second is serology, so which generally you would expect to start to be mount that response to be mounted about 14 to 21 days after somebody's been exposed. So we are recommending that we do look for both of those in patients who you where you suspect MISC. 
we do know that there still are some patients who meet the case definition of MISC who live in areas that have been heavily impacted by COVID, where we suspect that it still may be the cause, but they're having negative tests for both. And in that case, we still would continue to treat them as MISC. So I think in the New England Journal article, about 70 to 80% of them were positive by either one or the other, by RT-PCR or by serology. But there were still about 30% of patients that did not have a positive test. However, in most of those patients, there is often an epidemiologic link to COVID. So they may say that someone in their household had COVID often about a month prior, or they had some other known exposure to somebody with COVID. And between the RT-PCR and the serology, it seems like more patients have positive serologies. If they do have a positive PCR, at this point, it seems like that's probably more related to continuous shedding and not as consistent with acute infection. So um, we know that children can continue to have a positive PCR after infection for weeks. And so if you're detecting a positive PCR, because we still think this is probably more of a delayed immune response, um, I would think that that probably represents that they are just continuing to shed, but may not, you may not be able to actually uh, time the infection or know exactly when the infection happened. Okay, let's talk about treatment. Uh, we have some options with Kawasaki. We do that aspirin. We give some IVIG. Um, you know, we can get more creative in our really severe Kawasaki patients. What options do we have available for MISC? At this time for treatment of MISC, most centers are using either IVIG or steroids or a combination of both. Based on anecdotal data, it seems like those treatments have been highly successful, so the majority of patients do seem to recover successfully without ongoing cardiac dysfunction, although we will need to wait for longer-term follow-up to see if there is any um, other long-term sequelae. Because we don't have any randomized controlled trials, because it's still such a rare event, I think we are still trying to figure out you know, what the appropriate treatment is if somebody does not respond to that initial treatment with IVIG and steroids. And so other immunomodulator therapy like anakinra um, or tocilizumab are some of the other drugs that are being considered um, and, we ha and have anecdotally also been shown to be beneficial. What about in the emergency department? Um, you know, we're not obviously not going to give IVIG and all of those other alphabet drugs. What options do we have if somebody is hypotensive? What's our initial approach for that kid? It can be tricky because there are so many different potential etiologies of shock in these patients. Um, so it could be shock similar to pathophysiology behind sepsis, or it could be cardiogenic shock. And so I think there's sort of a balance between giving fluids and then starting pressors early if they're not responding to those fluids and getting an echo as soon as you can to determine left ventricular dysfunction. So I think there is a, a balance between making sure that you are adequately fluid resuscitating, but also taking into account that the, the shock may be cardiogenic and fluids may not be effective in that setting. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I heard some of uh, the PICU doctors from New York talking about that, and they were suggesting being a little bit more judicious with fluids. Like, we are super aggressive with fluids in those first hour of so, and we just fill that pipe, you know, fill the pump. And so if the pump is broken, if the heart is broken, then you have to give medicine to help that part of it and not just filling the pipes is going to cause it even more overwhelming problems. So they suggested, you know, bolus, monitor, 
and then consider, you know, pressors that are going to help with cardiogenic shock, like milrinone, and thinking about, you know, norepi early, um, looking for alternative medicines instead of just trying to prime the pump as much as we normally do. So I think you're right. We still have to figure this all out, but we have to figure this out on a patient-by-patient basis also. And um, I had a kiddo, and we got cardiology involved really early, like in the emergency department, called them up, and they sent the echo tech in to get us some information. Not everybody has that opportunity, but I think you're right. Early echoes is super crucial. Yeah, and I think that just goes to show how important it is for collaboration between all of the different specialties early on and transferring these patients to a center that has cardiology or intensive care capabilities is really important, again, because some of them deteriorate quite quickly. And so being able to get echoes done you know, in a timely manner and have input from intensivists and cardiologists, rheumatologists, infectious disease doctors, all of that can be really important early on. Yeah, that's a brilliant point. I like that. Anything else you think we need to know about MISC? I think there are some features that help you distinguish it from regular Kawasaki disease. So I think some things to look out for that might be sort of pearls that can clue you into this patient having MISC include things like the low platelet count. So that's something that we see in MISC that we don't typically think about occurring very commonly with Kawasaki disease. Uh, of course, you could see that in sepsis as well. So I think these patients can often uh, appear that they have sepsis. Along the same lines, I think it's important to remember that as we're seeing these patients with MISC frequently, we don't want to only you know have a one-track mind and start to think of every patient with shock has MISC and, and forget that sepsis still exists as well. And so the recommendation is still going to be to treat these patients with broad-spectrum antibiotics, at least for the first 48 hours while we're sorting out what exactly is contributing to the shock, um, especially with these sicker patients. That's a really good point, not to forget that. One more question for you. You mentioned that uh, kids can have a prolonged time period where their PCR is positive and the nasopharyngeal swab. One of the things that everybody's struggling right now with with kids is how are they transmitting and how frequently are they transmitting COVID. Can you clarify something for us? As to the best of our knowledge, understanding we don't understand it super well, when a child is sick with COVID, they're infected with it, symptomatic or not, they're still shedding the virus and have the opportunity to pass it on to other people? Or do we think that that's less frequent than other types of viruses? So I think in the setting of when they're acutely symptomatic, they have very high viral loads and can have active replicating live virus. Whether or not they generate droplets as much as adults do, I think that still remains to be seen. And so it's thought that maybe the reason that they are not at least right now, appear to be transmitting infection as commonly as adults is maybe because they're just not generating those droplets as much. But definitely, it appears that their secretions would be contagious at that moment. I think the confusing thing with PCR is that that can remain positive for a long time, even if there's not active replicating virus. And so the CDC had just recently published something about that, trying to make the distinction between having actual live virus, which can be infectious, versus having a positive PCR, which can lag behind having a positive culture for several weeks, especially in children. Yeah, that's a long time. And what about if they're asymptomatic 
What is the transmission discussion in those kids, the asymptomatic ones? I think some asymptomatic children and adults have still been able to produce infectious droplets and transmit, but it's generally thought that someone who's asymptomatic is on average going to produce less infectious droplets as compared to somebody who is symptomatic. So I think they're probably lower risk, but they still could potentially transmit. So anyone that is asymptomatic has a lower chance of transmission, and then kids in general seem to have a lower transmission rate when they're sick. So when they're asymptomatic, there's even a lower chance potentially. That's what it appears right now. I mean, it seems like in these studies where they've looked at households where children are infected, it often seems like they are infected from adults in the household, and it's less commonly that they are the index case transmitting to other people within the household. Some people have argued that maybe because adults are out and about more right now and children, especially in the United States, are often at home, that even in Sweden, where they have not restricted things as much, that also seems to be the pattern. And then in South Korea, they recently did a study where it looked like that it was really age-dependent on how, um, how much children were able to transmit. So children in the lower age group, ages 0 to 9, were less likely to transmit whereas children aged 10 to 19 were more likely to transmit. And so it seems like those children may be able to produce droplets similar to an adult. Thank you for your time. I appreciate this. It's going to be helpful for me on my next shift. So I really appreciate your time. Yes, thanks for having me. I hope you learned as much as I did from Dr. Nakra. It makes a lot of sense as we figure this illness out to think about MISC in kids with other features such as GI symptoms, rashes, early on in a febrile illness. And to pursue evaluation in those with a fever of five days without any other symptoms. If you find elevated inflammatory markers with a history of COVID exposure, or if you're in an area with high prevalence, just admit. Also, if they are hypotensive, give fluids cautiously. Consider pressors earlier than you would in other kids because you might have cardiogenic shock. And transfer to a pediatric center with multidisciplinary resources. I don't know about you, but that is something new for me to evaluate with a bunch of inflammatory labs earlier on in a febrile illness. And it will change the way I approach my kiddos on my next shift.